Hey, everyone. Today we're discussing chapters 7, 8, and 9 of discipling, and we'll get into two big topics. First, who we should disciple, and second, how we should treat the time that it takes to disciple others. Let's jump right in. On the topic of who to disciple, earlier in the book and in our series, we talked about simply making a list of those who are available and willing and picking the most, most likely candidates. We talked about the common leadership principle of looking for someone who is faithful, available, and teachable. That advice still holds, though chapter 7 gives us a few more criteria to think through. Luckily, many of these criteria will be met if we're looking for somebody who is already in our community. Dever suggests that we choose Christians who are in our body and ideally members. He also suggests, as we also outline for our discipleship groups, that the intentional discipleship in view here, often in one-to-one interaction, is best done with somebody of the same gender. Now, this fact necessitates that both men and women be active in, in the role of discipling others, which we would hope to see in all of our communities. When speaking about age, he says that as a general principle, the people that you disciple will be younger, though not exclusively. What he doesn't say here, but fits in this category, is that the person or people that you disciple will, will end up being younger than you in their faith. Often that's measured in time, but also measured in maturity. Of course, it takes great mutual humility for people who do not fit this older and more mature teaching a younger and less spiritually mature paradigm. But if that's how God has arranged the people in your life in this season, don't let age be a barrier. Think about Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and how we are to relate uh, to older men and women. Related to age and maturity, let's say you've been a believer for 10 years. You've got two guys in your community, one who's been a believer for five years, another who's been a believer for two years. What might you do to disciple these guys? It's possible you could pull them both together, but if that's not an option, I would suggest that you disciple the person who is closer in spiritual age and maturity to you and invite him to disciple the other person. In this way, you're actively pouring into and discipling somebody and the person to whom you are discipling, they can also be actively discipling somebody else. Combining two threads, I would ask the question, how much do you need to have in common? And the composite answer here is that you only need a shared faith and some practical proximity and alignment of schedules. I love the way that Dever says this on page 80. Assume that God isn't calling us to do something impossible by discipling others. So we realize that we cannot disciple everyone, and there may be seasons where the person who we think is the best candidate just can't make it work due to scheduling or time commitments, or a season of life. And that's okay for us to accept as a limitation, so long as we then proceed to be faithful to disciple somebody. The conflict of schedules can't be an excuse for us to do nothing with anyone. Proximity is another way of prioritizing, and another reason that looking for people in your community will make sense. Simply that you need to be able to spend time together, and that is easiest to do if you're relatively close to each other and where you work, where you spend your time, or where you live. And this gets us to the second big topic for today, the time commitment. Exactly how much time is needed to effectively disciple someone? Well, not surprisingly, and perhaps unhelpfully, that time varies based on the needs of the individual, the goals you set out to accomplish, and both parties' capacity. But no matter what the time answer is, it will be non-zero, meaning it will cost something. And with that cost, there's a need for us to make a commitment to it. 
we have to fight our transactional consumer mentality here. We're trained to want immediate and big results, but that's not how relationships in general and especially discipling relationship work. The only thing that has a really big impact and doesn't take a whole lot of time is a car crash. But before we write it off, isn't it the case that anything that's worthwhile costs something, whether time or energy or resources? Think about your marriage or your friendships, or for those of you with kids, your children. What is the cost of those relationships? Sure, a child may cost you in food and diapers, but I think the biggest cost for these relationships is time. And we usually don't, or at least we shouldn't, be begrudging our friends and our spouses and our children for taking time, right? Why is that? It's because we intrinsically value those relationships. And so we should seek to value our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. Now, of course, everyone who's listening here has already committed to caring for others in our church by the very fact that you've put in the time and energy to become a leader in your communities and also to be listening. So don't take me as saying that you haven't committed to this already to an extent. Many of you are doing this to a very large extent. But one of the themes that we discussed in our sync earlier this quarter was the fact that like all other time commitments, they will follow our priorities and what we value. Or to say it differently, we'll always make time for the things that we value the most. And so we should be valuing the discipling of others because we care about the other person or the people that we're discipling, and that gives them a priority in our lives. Now, there is good news here when we talk about time, and namely that this time doesn't have to come exclusively from all other activities. I say exclusively because I think that a successful discipling relationship will have some focused and dedicated time between both people, but not 100% of that time needs to be spent one-on-one apart from all other activities or commitments. For example, you might bring your potential apprentice into your existing discipleship group so that it isn't a net new time slot in your calendar. Or, if you don't have a discipleship group up and running but want to be discipling two or three others, then creating a discipleship group will allow you to invest in a few people at one time, such that the time commitment isn't linearly proportional to the number of people that you're investing in. Similarly, you can invite your apprentice to join you in things that you're already doing. For example, your preparation for your community gathering. If you normally do your preparation on Monday nights, then perhaps move that from being something you do alone to something that you do with your apprentice together. This is a great time to be praying for your community and the members of your community with other people. Another way of leveraging existing time could be to talk on the phone during your commute or run some of your errands together that you're going to both have to do anyway. Or, since most of us eat multiple times a day, invite your apprentice to meet up over a meal that you would already be having. If you live close together, grab breakfast or coffee before work. Or if you work close together, grab a lunch or a coffee break or a happy hour. Another set of practical considerations has to do with the aim and focus of your discipleship time. Each of your discipling relationships should have a stated aim, and with that, a time boundary. For example, if there's a person in your community who's wrestling with a particular sin, you might decide to meet up with him or her for a few times over the course of a quarter to read through a specific book together on that topic. Or, an example from my own community earlier this year, there were a handful of folks who were interested in the same topics around financial management. So, we all read the short book, The Treasuring Principle, together, and then met together as a small group to discuss the book and the bigger questions around financial stewardship. It could be simply to walk through the gospel or an epistle together, meeting a few times in the course of a month. Whatever it is, each of these examples has a target and a time frame. 
If you set out to read something together, reevaluate when that particular book or study is done. It's okay if the next quarter doesn't work for you and that person to read another book together. Perhaps you do something less frequent or let that person meet up with another for the next season. So I hope this helps widen the picture of discipleship and give you some ideas on how you can be building discipleship of others into the fabric of your lives. Remember that not every discipling relationship needs to be one-on-one, a chapter a week for a year in order to be effective. Now, that's certainly possible, but that's not the only way or the required way to invest in other people. What is required is that we steward our time and energies using our gifts to help build up our body. And as we invest in others, seeking to do them spiritual good, we will get to participate in the joy of seeing God at work in them. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us life and breath. Thank you for giving us time and talent and treasure that we're even able to experience relationship and to be stewards over. I pray that you'd give us wisdom in choosing people and setting up rhythms to disciple others, uh, that we might see you at work in their lives and get to share in your joy as they grow more and more into your image. I pray that you'd continue to build up our communities with meaningful discipling relationships and draw those who are in our care closer to you and closer to one another in the process. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.